Well, did you know that across three days at the London Olympics, four Ethiopians won gold medals across three days. Uh, they won three gold, uh, sorry, won four medals, three gold, one bronze. And that's probably no surprise uh, because we know that people who come from the east of Africa are well known for their long distance running and produ have produced some of the best champions in the world in the sport. But I bet you didn't know that these four people in the same Olympics all came from the very same country in Africa, from Ethiopia. And these four people all came from the very same village in Ethiopia. It's a village called Bekoji. And hopefully we've got a picture there. Or maybe I didn't put it in. There we go, Bekoji. Uh, there you see, okay. It's not a big village. A village of 17,000 people. And across three days, four, gold, four medals, three gold, one bronze, belonging to that town. Over the last 15 years, Bokoji has produced 10 Olympic gold medals, broke 10 world records, and have won 132 world championships. How would that be? Like you'd wake up and that your neighbour is a world champion. It's the kind of place that if you win Tuesday morning's training session, you are the best in the world. Wow. It's not a one-off though. There's all sorts of places all around the world in different fields where you find this anom anomaly where that it's just it's just a proving ground for greatness. Makes you ask, is there something in the water? What's the go with that place? If you were asked, where do the world's best sprinters come from? Where would you say? USA. Sprinters, not long distance. Sprinters. USA, okay. You're not wrong, but wrong answer. Jamaica! Jamaica! Some of the world's best sprinters come from Jamaica and the USA. Um, some would say that there's a bit of a genetic-based thing here, you know, that there's a race-linked gene, but actually some of the world's leading sports scientists have come to say that there's very weak evidence for a race-linked gene. And it makes you wonder, then, how do so many sprinters and the world's best sprinters come from this country, Jamaica? One of the crazy things is, of course that some of the world's best sprinters, a high proportion, don't just come from the same country, but come from the same athletic track in the outskirts of Kingston. MVP track and field. Now, MVP track and field, imagine right, like what it would be like to arrive there one morning, 6am, you know, as the athletes do to get their put their best foot forward and get as much preparation as possible, 6am. And the, the coaches have arrived 
And some of the athletes are arriving and, you know, if you arrive there, you could look across and there's Elaine Thompson. She won 100 metre and 200 metre gold at the Rio Olympics. You could probably look across some days and see a Safa Powell arriving to training. Can you imagine what it would be like, what you would see if you went into their weights room? Imagine going into their, their dietitian, you know, little practices where they, they can, you know, get, get topped up with the things that they need for their optimum performance. Can you imagine the, the, the mini stadium they train at? Can you imagine those well-air-conditioned rooms where, where they're able to put themselves under so much pressure to get the best out of their body in training? Well, not exactly. This is, my, this, this is perhaps more like what you would see when you arrive to MVP track and field. Doesn't quite look the same as what we might imagine, like one of the big universities in in, uh, in America, you know, with with their stadiums and their track and field teams and their their their, their NFL teams and and the facilities they've got. This illustrious, prestigious, most high achieving sprinting club in the world, and that's what you got. You're likely to see a diesel-scorched running track with a bag of rusted old weights with ropes tied to them. What do you think the head of athletics looks like at MVP track and field? <laughs> head of athletics. This guy has trained some of the world's best sprinters. And I'm not saying like 20 years ago, you know, like when he used to be, you know. This is the head trainer, Stephen Francis. Is that a whip? <laughs> is it a whip? I think, I think actually it's just a whistle with a cord on it. That's all he's got there, yeah. Now, when he was asked, you are training the best athletes in the world, why are you not building proper facilities for them? His response is this. Some facilities in other countries, I look at them, and obviously their emphasis is for them to be comfortable. A performance centre must be designed with work in mind and not with comfort. Well, I tell you, if there was a reflection about the church sometimes today, this isn't a place for comfort. Our whole series has been changing the status quo. And I'm sure there's been multiple times where you might sit there and go, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. No, that's ridiculous. No, not, not at this stage of life. I don't have to push myself out like that. I don't have to do that. Well, you know what? This isn't a place for comfort. Jesus actually called the sinners, not the saints, that he would be a place to care for those who are hurting, not for those who have got it all fine and are comfortable and don't need to do anything else. Jesus doesn't want the comfortable. This morning is not about comfort. 
if our hope is to achieve far greater heights and depths and lengths in relationship with God, then we have to be prepared to get uncomfortable, to do something differently. And I tell you, if you haven't done anything differently through the course of our series, if you're sitting in the same place now as you're sitting in the same place at the start, then you are going nowhere. And what is the point of going nowhere? This morning we're going to be looking at the biggest thing that stops us in relationship with God. The the single biggest thing that stops us also from having any relationship with God. It's the issue of sin. And this morning we're looking at tolerated sin. God wants us to stop the sin and return to him. I tell, I tell you, to be honest, it's not an easy one to preach this morning. It's not an easy one to prepare for. If you know me well enough already, I'm not a confrontational person. So if you sort of think, oh, gee, look at him hammer home this morning, it's not, I'm not doing it out of my own comfort. But fortunately, the love that I have for what God wants to see and do in our lives is far greater than the one I have for comfort. So as we address tolerated sin, let's consider the reading that Sharon brought for us this morning. The men we read about in this story, they don't give two hoots about this woman or what she's done. They cared about condemning her actions and trying to trick Jesus, but they didn't care about her. They focused on her sin. They didn't tolerate her sin, right? But Jesus decided to focus on the sin that was being tolerated. He actually first and foremost decided to deal with the people who were standing around thinking that their sin was not so bad, that it didn't matter so much. And he first dealt with those who were going, you know what, this isn't so bad. Because the sin that is being tolerated is a bigger problem because nobody's in a hurry to change the sin that they're tolerating. Why do I need to change that? I don't care so much about it. It's not a big deal for me. Sometimes we can be like these Pharisees, high and mighty in our own self-righteousness, pointing fingers at what we consider to be bad when we're just as guilty of sin ourselves. So we're going to turn the spotlight on ourselves this morning. For us all to go, you know what, instead of dragging someone else before Jesus, I'm going to bring myself before Jesus and let him shine a light on my life. Because God wants us to stop the sin and return to him. In each of our own lives, in each of our own lives, what is the sin we don't consider to be sin? 
It was the problem for the men in the story. They had turned Judaism into something that it's not. They had become so legalistic and focused on the nitty-gritty, the tiny details and would slam people for that, that they're actually missing the whole point of what it was contributing to. That Jesus kept going, hang on, hang on, hang on, you're trying to make it about this thing and this thing and this thing. It's actually about this. They weren't even giving their own misgivings a second thought. And it's funny because it's the same for us today, is that there's so many times through the scriptures. Tolerance is one of our flavour words in society today. Yet as Christians, we can't be tolerant of all things. Jesus wasn't tolerant of all things. Tolerance has now come to mean the compromise of one's convictions in the name of acceptance. But we know Jesus accepts the sinner, not the actions of the sinner. Billy Graham, he said these words. We have become tolerant about divorce, the use of alcohol, delinquency, wickedness in high places, immorality, crime and godlessness. We have become sapped of conviction, drained of our beliefs and bereft of our faith. But sadly, that's not who we are called to be. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, who journeyed from heaven to earth, back again, who knew the way better than anyone else could, said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by in it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. How much does tolerance help if it leads someone all the way to the gate of life but still stops them from entering? Where is the love and care for that person if we can bring them so far but not all the way? Have you ever uttered a phrase such as this? Maybe you've heard someone else say it. Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. Or maybe, I'm not religious, but I'm a person of faith. I know I've said it. I know I've heard other people say it. In essence, in essence these phrases are good, right? There's a good backing and foundation to them. But also, they also seem to suggest something a little bit more. That somehow in the pursuit of faith that we have to be acceptable and palatable to these people who want to disregard religion. Oh, yeah, but I'm not religious. I'm a faithful person. Christianity is a religion. Religion isn't set up by God. We set it up. Christianity is a religion. But how we outwork this Christian religion is different, Yeah. 
So it is a religion. I'm not going to disown something that, that that's it's you know you're playing with words. It's it's true, but yes, it's that's not what it's about. And I think sometimes, and I've seen so many young people who have tried to uh, divorce themselves from all the, the things they perceive as negative to do with a Christian faith that they've actually thrown out a whole lot of things. You know what? Like I don't I don't need to have. You know, theology doesn't matter so much. You know, not oh, that's, that's religious. I don't need theology because I'm just going to live like Jesus. I tell you, while those might be good intentions, bad theology results in a bad relationship with God. Theology is the study of God. The more you learn about God, the better you understand him. The better you understand him, the better you know him. The better you know him, the more likely you are to live according to him, in line with him, walking with him. And so if all of a sudden you throw out your theology, you know what, I don't have to think about that stuff, that stuff doesn't matter, I'm going to skip through the heavy stuff in the Bible, I don't have to, I don't need, I'm just going to avoid all those hard conversations. If we have a bad theology, it ends up resulting in a bad relationship with God. And instead of walking side by side with God, and we think we are, we actually, unbeknownst to us, and we don't know it, but we're actually walking one step at a time away from God. Now, I know very few persons who can take instruction, challenge, a little push with a gracious and thankful heart. We, we, don't, we don't tend to respond well when someone is correcting us. We have to be prepared, each one of us, to swallow our reactions our pride, our emotions. Oh, I don't like the way they said it. And then maybe there was some truth to it, but I don't like the way they said it. You know what? The responsibility. I was actually telling one of my nieces this week, when something happens and you think, oh, gosh, like that got to some truth that's not so good in me, if your first reaction is actually to point the blame at someone else or to shift the responsibility, and it's actually a sign of weakness. And it's probably telling you as soon as you want to react to someone harshly, it's probably because they've actually spoken to the heart. Yes, it's hurt. But sometimes we need to hear that. Sometimes we need to be convicted of something to be willing to make a change. We've got to swallow our reactions, our feelings, our emotions, and take responsibility and accept it. Instead of just keep forging our own path with how we think God said it, but not because that's what God has said, but because we've just come to that belief ourselves. We need to reform our easy, accepting and tolerant theology. We need to stop the sin and return to him because there's some stuff that each one of us probably has in our lives which you know what we've strayed from the path that we've gone you know what this is the way and we don't realize that we are living in that sin 
when God does. You don't want to be that person who rocks up to heaven and has God ask him to, uh, ask you to get, uh, account for your, your actions, for you to say, I didn't actually think you mean, meant what you said. How much would that suck? The fact that he's actually told us and we still stuff it up. It's not an easy thing when, uh, when we get into conversations with, with people who have some, some stuff going along in their lives, especially when they're contentious issues. We've had so many contentious issues, I reckon, over the last 10 years, let alone the last two years in our culture. They're difficult topics. They're not easy. And you know what makes it even harder is when we personally know someone involved that perhaps for some reason they believed, you know, it's, 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 it's more personal for them and it's, and it's more relevant for them so they should have more of a say. It's hard. Whenever I'm asked about a contentious topic, every time I try and make sure in my response that I say, you know what, before I tell you, I wanted to say that this is where I am right now. I could be in a different place in 10 years' time. I could be in a different place in 50 years' time. I'm willing to admit that I could be wrong here about what God thinks. We have to be willing enough just to, just to be willing to, to, to be self-aware that we could have it wrong. But until we know we've got it wrong, we've got to stand firm. Got one piece of advice in this. Navigating these difficult discussions, right? And I'm going to say it pretty, 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 pretty flat. Never, never, ever change your opinion because of what somebody says. Always change your opinion because of what God says. If it's not coming from God, don't change your mind. Now, you might be in discussion with somebody who shares with you, right? And it's personal, it's emotional, and, and they're so tied to it, and we feel for them, and our emotions want to do what we can for them. Don't change your mind. But if you're talking with someone and they are sharing with you a part of God's word, if they've had some reflections and they've journeyed and they're bringing God's word to you, then you have space and liberty to change your mind. Take, go away, take those scriptures, look them up, find them for yourselves, read through it. And if God is communicating to you there, then go for it. Change your mind, reform your thinking. Don't change your mind. Because of what somebody says. Only change your mind when it's what God is saying. Can you tell me how it's obvious from our reading that the Pharisees actually didn't care about the woman and her actions? 
Can you tell how, how you know that they don't care? Who did they bring before Jesus? The woman caught in adultery. Now, I don't know what your math is like in your life experiences, but it's pretty hard to commit adultery on your own. So I'm led to believe. I don't know. Where's the man in this equation? Their actions actually betray their intent, doesn't it? Where's the man in this situation? Lucky fella. Jesus, on the other hand, right, he shows that he cares about this woman, not only by withholding condemnation right there and then, but by calling her to leave her sin behind. After all that, he still asks, and well, he doesn't ask, he tells her, leave your sin behind. Jesus makes the effort to address the sin we know we have. These are the things that we know God doesn't stand for, but we're doing them anyway. Oh, it's not like I killed anybody. Oh, it's not so bad. But you can't come at these things with earthly logic. God illustrates to us that sin is separation from God. So it, it doesn't matter how little or big in your mind you think the sin is. Every sin creates a barrier. And as soon as you're separated from God, then I tell you, you've got things to worry about in that day, those final days that you, you breathe on this earth. Hebrews 10, 26 to 27, look out. It says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice of sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. You know what, Jono? I'd stop what I'm doing if it didn't give me such a buzz. Oh, but the thrill it gives me. Of course it gives you a thrill. Of course it's appealing. Of course it's enjoyable. The devil wouldn't give you something to tempt you that you wouldn't be tempted by. He wouldn't give you something that's like, well, I'm not doing that again. He'll be out of a job. Oh, it's just a one-off. Surely it won't count against me. It doesn't matter. Like, yeah, every single sin counts. I've, uh, I've been watching all sorts of men, young and old, out my, out my window over there. Last few weeks, Mad Monday. Woo, Mad Monday. Oh, I can only pretend I've ever done a Mad Monday. I don't care. Um, never went on the footy trips, but I tell you, I get to see the guys heading down to the pub this past week. Had this merry big band of young fellas wandering down the street. You can hear them coming from a mile away, okay? So you, you hear some of their words, some of the words you don't understand so well. I was uh, standing having a conversation in the, in the foyer in the office and the, uh, the blinds are up and, and uh, one guy sort of in his tights and whatever he was wearing, I, to be honest, I don't remember what he was dressed as. He sort of stepped off the path, you know, sort of towards the concrete set we've got over there and just off the path, a bit out of the eye of the general public, but all these guys going along. And I was thinking, what's this guy up to? 
I'm an observant person. It's a curse sometimes. And uh, let's just say he had to rearrange some baggage just for a moment in those tight tights of his. Some of the things we do when we think nobody is looking. Sure, no, he's thinking, oh, no one can see me. Well, I had front row seats to an uncomfortable show. <sighs> Some of the things that we do, because it's our little secret that nobody else is going to know. Or maybe that person knows, but that's fine because nobody, nobody, that, we'll, we'll enjoy that sin. No one else needs to know. We'll be fine. The things we do in private, the things that the devil is tempting us with and challenging us with and having us go down the wrong path, God is still there. He can give you strength. You don't have to do it. But this morning I'm saying those little secrets, those things hiding, they're not hidden. Those things that we don't consider so bad, they are. God knows. So if there's something in your life that you know deep down isn't right, but somehow you've justified it in your mind, if you've found yourself being brought to Jesus right now and told to go and sin no more, what is he saying to you? What is he talking about in your life right now? Are you lying to your kids? Whether you think that little lie isn't so important or not. Are you deceiving the same person over and over again? Are you being unfaithful to your husband or wife, even though you haven't done anything serious yet? Always starts in the heart. Do you forego self-control when you're faced with the right temptation? It's only wrong if you get drunk and do something bad. Well, maybe it's that or maybe it's what God says. An older friend of mine told me that her friend who was a retired minister, couldn't understand why she wasn't sleeping with her partner. Oh, but at, the age, at that age, it doesn't really matter anymore. Yeah, according to the word of that person, but not according to the word of God. Are you holding a grudge that you are not planning to let go? Are you busy with your own importance that you can't see the log in your own eye? Do you steal? Maybe from those who won't notice. Maybe you consider yourself a bit, self a bit of a Robin Hood. But you know what? That's not the way God sees it. It doesn't still make it okay. The right mo motives with the wrong actions are still the wrong, wrong actions. Now, these are just a few. You know you. God knows you. 
Meet with God with what he's shining a light on in your life. This is not who God has called us to be. We do not have to live in sin. Jesus Christ has called us to be so much more. Let's just have a look at a portion from Ephesians 2, 3 to 10. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good things which God prepared. He prepared in advance for us to do. He's got those good things for us already waiting for us to do. You are chosen and you are loved. You're precious to God and you've, already, you've been made alive again in him. That is who we are called to be. That is who we are called to be. So we need to stop the sin and return to him. Self-awareness is a great thing if you do something with it. But if you're self-aware and you do nothing about it, it's worth nothing. If there's something heavy sitting with you, I want you to do the same as James chapter 5, 15 and 16 this morning. It's not easy, but dealing with sin isn't. To confess them to God and confess them to your brothers and sisters so we can pray for our healing. It's my challenge for you this morning. Confess them to God. And before you go this morning, confess them to somebody else. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. At the start and throughout this series, we've been considering that going deeper in relationship with Jesus is all about Christ-likeness. He must become greater, I must become less. And inevitably, it can't happen without change. So what change have you made this series? What have you done differently? If you can't pinpoint something, then, well, it's time to do something. If you want to see this world changed, if you want to see someone else's world changed,
It starts with you and your relationship with God. If nothing changes, then nothing will change. If your relationship with God becomes richer, so will the world around you. Let's change the status quo together. Let's grow together. Let's spur each other on. Let's transform our church. And as we transform our lives, transforming our church, we're going to see our world transform as well. So with Jesus, let's transform and change the status quo. Let me pray. Lord, we've come here this morning, Sunday morning, earlier than some might like. God, we've come and presented our praises to you. We've lifted up our hands. We've sung glory to you, God. But God, once we've finished with the stuff that we've done, God, we've come before your word and God asks you, Lord, what would you have done? What are you saying, God? And Lord, I ask that you would convict hearts this morning. Lord, through the conviction of sins in our lives, Lord, that we would be moved to let them go, to repent and give them over to you, God. And God, through conviction this morning, Lord, may we be freed by your grace, freed by your mercy, and God, set free to come closer to you, Lord. Lord, give us strength, give us responsibility and the preparedness to come to each other. And God, lead us in relationship with you. One step each day. A big leap each week, Lord. Lord, may we come closer to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to welcome our team back, but I encourage you, we will have some, some guys up here who can pray with you. I can pray with you. I encourage you, don't leave it any longer. Today is the day for transformation.